On one day, I went out, I released the two falcons, they flew as a couple, and uh, the female that was experienced falcon, the master falcon, hunt a dog, and the pills was uh, coming down and uh, joining to the kill. And all of a sudden, he got scared and flew, and flew away. Uh, and fortunately, I had a, a friend coming with me, and I, he had a lure by, uh, by himself, so he went looking for, for the male, and I was going to assist the female. I went running uh, to, to join her, and all of a sudden I get sunk in the mud. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Toll Podcast, and it is now the second episode of our Part 2 series featuring falconers from Mexico. And, of course, I have to give a quick shout-out and a thank you to the North American Falconers Association and the Falconry Fund for their small grants program that help make projects like this possible. If you want more information on how to support, join, or donate to either of these fine entities, just go to n-a-f-a for the North American Falconers Association and also falconryfund.org. And before I recorded this episode with Raul, I was already somewhat familiar with him because of one of the virtual presentations that he gave about his massive falconry library that he's put together over many years. But like many things, it was one thing to be able to actually see it virtually versus being able to see it in person. It's definitely a lot more impressive actually being in his library and being able to see this massive collection of falconry information all in one place. It was kind of overwhelming. I was very happy to be able to go over to his house and check that out and also get some of his recollections, stories, and experiences about his personal falconry as well as trying to put together some of the rules and regulations for Mexico's government and things of that nature too. But anyway, you'll hear all about that here in this episode and I will go ahead and turn things over to that conversation that I had with Raul. So here we go. What were you saying just a little bit ago about what you do for a living okay. versus what you do I'm for I'm Raul Ducoin Arjona. I've been a falconer for all my life. I started at uh, the early eight of uh, eight, nine years. And so I uh, have been with a falcon on my feet ever since. So I don't recall one single day without having a falconry or thinking about falconry on my hand or a, or a hunting bear on my hand. <laughs> Uh, my work mm -hmm. is very different from my hobby. I uh, uh, tried to make a living out of falconry in Mexico, and that, of course, didn't work. So I became a sales professional, and I'm a, a, a general manager for a transnational company focused on rust preventive in automotive and petrochemical industry. So basically, you oh, you, yes. uh, you stay busy. I'm a, I'm a road warrior. <laughs> I had to travel all the time, and uh, when I come uh, uh, for the weekend home, I do falconry. So it's a uh, never-ending. I understand. Yeah, it's uh, it's always a constant work in progress and just a, a never-ending vicious cycle. So and, to speak. and trying to keep up with falconry in weekends is quite a task, but uh, I have managed to do that in the last um, uh, 30 plus years so 
I'm glad that I got a chance to, you know, come up and, and visit here and, and I'm, I'm appreciate you taking the time to do it. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I can't even wrap my head around all of these, all, all of this stuff that you've shown me. Well, you are more than welcome. And uh, let me tell you a little bit more about this. Uh, when I first started in a country that, uh, that doesn't have any falconry story, it was like um, uh, impossible to get a falconry book at that early time. So I'm talking about the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s. So the only uh, book available were copies of uh, Felix Rodriguez de la Fuente, The Art of Falconry. And we don't even, there wasn't a, a book that was available for us to buy. So if you find a colleague that had copies of the book, it was like a treasure. So we absorb all the all those information. And with that scarce information, we start training our, our birds. So uh, this uh, look or this search to, for gathering information became uh, an obsession for me. And uh, I, I strive and, and look for ways to obtain books from other countries since you can only get books at that time from the U.S. And, uh, well, eventually it become uh, such an obsession. Nowadays, I'm, uh, I'm uh, one of the uh, sick or more sick uh, guys or, or big weirdos. I think this collection is among the 20 most important, at least on America. And uh, it's uh, important worldwide anyways. And I have a difference from other book collectors because I'm focused on all kind of falconry history. That means that I, I have interests and, uh, and books from different countries and different language. We're talking about 20, 21, 22 different countries, different languages. Yeah, it is. No, that's insane. And no, I, I, I really admire people like you who have taken such... Um, a well, I guess you could call it a, a morbid uh, <laughs> obsession with uh, with doing that because you know without people like you and you know the folks at the archives and you know the people around the world that are really really just intrigued and passionate about preserving and you know documenting you know our, our history in this sport, it's it's going to be hard to continue to pass it along and it goes without saying i mean it, it eventually all records you know <laughs> are gonna are gonna go away you know, that's you know, that's exactly the idea that's, that's uh the idea. to to be uh fair uh, when we finish the season when we put our birds uh, uh to molt there is a lot of extra time and for for we the book collectors the hunt goes on because we switch uh, the quarry on the field for hunting those uh, elusive books out there. So it's the passions continue as well. And the idea is precisely, as you say, to, to preserve uh, history and preserve uh, the culture. Uh, we see ourselves not as the owner of the books because the, the books are going to, uh, to stay when we die and someone else is going to to have it on the hands as uh, as you can see here i have some books from two centuries ago and uh, when you got those books you open and you see the notes and you see the signatures 
you can only th uh, think about other lives, how it went and, and what's the legacy out there. So, uh, yes, we the, the book collectors want to have a legacy by, uh, by being the ones, remember, to be the preservators of uh, the culture. Yeah, and I mean that's our hope anyway. I mean we we our hope wouldn't would be that these don't eventually some end up somewhere that um, you know it's just going to get either <laughs> tossed in the trash or or whatever. I mean, I um, I understand you know, and and I feel the same way whenever I I have a, something vintage you know in my hands also that I'm I'm looking at and you know I've I've had plenty of other hobbies ranging from vintage comic book collecting to, you know, vintage uh, toys and other nerdy stuff like that as well. And not only does it, you know, remind you of, of your own history or your own past or, you know, whatever, it also makes you think and appreciate, you know, the stuff that came before you. And, and um, you know, just it's, it's like you're holding, you know, even though it, it can be viewed as mundane by some people, Regardless, you're still holding a piece of history, and you know, I mean, and there's there's something to be to be said for that because a lot of these books, I mean, it's not like there's a lot of That's them correct. playing around anymore. Many, uh, few people know how many Falconry books are really out there, and but uh, let me put it this way: the people that read one book lives one life. The people that read many books lives many lives. When you open a Falconry book and and you actually read it, you uh, transport yourself to that particular scene and you hunt along with the, with the uh, narrator and go and, and place yourself on that particular hunting. And that's an excellent way to, of learning uh, from an art that is so old there is, that there is few things to be added. So people think that now with the new technologies, with the use of the drones and uh, and uh, the GPS is uh, easier to, is easier to make falconry, and that's wrong, because when you are flying a, a bird that is alive, many things can happen, as we all know. And turns out that the old teachings can tell can help you to recover a bird easier than using a GPS. Sometimes it's easier to look for the natural signs than it is to pick up your phone. And battery doesn't die. Yeah, yeah. Your G, or your GPS signal is is triangulating at the end. And all the all the all those tools are amazing. And I'm really happy that we have them. And and you can't convince me that if some of these old, you know, kings and emperors, and you can't convince me that if they saw a current GPS system or something, that they wouldn't want to to probably use it as well. As in everything in falconry. You cannot go to either of the extremes. You need to do a balance. And when you have a, a good balance and a good understanding, then you you can do things the best way, or I will say right. I mean, uh, you have to be objective and don't uh, strive on putting all your, your odds on one of the extremes. So the more you learn, the more you understand, the more prepared you are to go outfield. There is people that say, oh, if I go hunting all the time, I'm going to learn everything. That's uh, not necessarily the case. You need to do a balance. There is uh, benefits on learning from other people, and there is uh, benefits from the putting those learnings on your uh, on your training out out there. So 
Yeah. Sure. Well, let's go back to what you were kind of talking about or briefly touched on just just a few minutes ago in that I know you were showing me your your list or your compendium, so to speak, of all of your um, logged books that you're aware of or, or have. You know, I, out of curiosity, I mean, you made the comment that you know most people don't realize just how many falconry books are out there. And how approximately how many, by your recollection and your record-keeping, are out there? Okay, that's a very good question. And there is, impo- there, there is no way to have a, a, an educate, uh, well, an exact answer. But mm-hmm. let me try to put an educate answer. Mm-hmm. I will, for example, I am, I, my collection goes around a thousand falconry books. And I am uh, uh, I'm one of the... 20 most important particular mm-hmm. uh, collectors. But if you see some, someone like the Archives of British Falconry or even the Archives of Falconry at Boise, those guys have like um, like uh, five to 6,000 books over there. And those the guys have uh, almost all the, the available uh, falconry books out there. So... That can give you an idea. I think that the existence will be around uh, eight to ten thousand books, and of course, uh, then you have to depurate because there are some books that that only talks a little bit about falconry, and there are some very complete compendiums that are a, a must have. Sure. Granted, yeah, I mean we can only ever approximate because you know there's probably I don't even know how many books or writings that probably have just gotten lost in time and never, oh, yes. never were published or never, you know, but. There, there was, uh, well, the most famous uh, faculty book collector was a German guy. And this uh, guy had the, the biggest uh, hunting uh, book collections uh, worldwide. And it includes not only falconry, but all kind of hunting. And um, it was the ta- Tiliana uh, Library, Tiliana, and all his uh, books had a book plate. So these compendiums were so rare that the, they were sold on, on when he died. These compendiums were sold on auctions on Shotterdy. But this, let me give you the story of this guy. He uh, was a survivor of the uh, Second World War. And when the Germans uh, arrived, they took his home and burned out his library, stole all his art, stole all his books uh, from his uh, family. And he, this guy has to uh, start all over again, put again a company. Uh, he rises up from uh, scratch from the very beginning and uh, create another emporium and uh, remake his library. And this is the library that survived and was sold on Shottersby. So with this being said, on, on that particular time, a lot of uh, amazing hunting books were burned or lost over time. Same thing happens with the Inquisition. So we talk about, uh, we, we are all familiar with uh, Frederick II, but some, there are some lost books that we only know the name or the title, but there is nowhere to be found because they were burned on piles. So yeah, humans are stupid. Real humans have some great of uh, weirdness. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's it makes you sick. 
to think of of all that knowledge and, and stuff that's been lost over the over the centuries potentially and yeah i mean that's i don't know like i said i know it's it's something even even someone as obsessed and motivated as as yourself it's never going to be possible to probably have every single writing no, it's you know it's, for, it's it's impossible it but. is impossible for me uh, what, what I do with my books, I love, I read them, and I'm, I'm a consultant for many of my friends, Falconers, when they have a doubt or they have a discussion of this particular topic or this particular author, they call me and say, hey, Raul, can you please give us some feedback? And I'm very pleased to provide uh, the actual copies or the actual pages of the books and give some light here. So that's, uh, that's uh, the the focus mm-hmm. or or the propose for yeah. this uh, falconry sure library eventually i don't know what's going to happen when i die i think most of the books will go to the archives well that's it's fine i've got the, really the perfect solution for you though i'll give you my address <laughs> and my personal information after we're done here and uh you can just write that in the will and just leave them all to me and i'll make sure that they're properly taken care of for you sounds uh, cool <laughs> <laughs> No, this is it's fantastic though, and like I said, it's very admirable what you've been able to put together over all these years. And I I know you've been asked this, I'm sure, a, a million times also, and and probably have already said it on record somewhere. But I, out of curiosity, what is your your most valuable or oldest book, and then what is your personal favorite? That's a very tough question. If I had to pick one book or all all of all, all of them, I will take Frederick the second. Because that's the most complete compendium, and uh, the most uh, it's it's still up to date at these uh, at these uh, years. Mm-hmm. It has overpassed the centuries and is still being recognized as the maximum ornithology uh, book produced. However, if you if you ask me who's my favorite authors, I can tell you a lot of of different authors. Uh, I liked uh, not all falconers have the same um, methods or, or training. So there is different authors for different uh, uh, ways of training. Mm-hmm. For me, Ronald Stevens is a must. Technically speaking, what your favorite versus what the most practical is or most collectible, I mean, won't always be the, the same things necessarily. That's but. correct. And, and, in, and like in falconry, uh, to, in order to be successful, you need to know what you want to hunt and then you choose the the raptor. With books, it's exactly the same. What's the kind of bird or the kind of, of uh, the kind of quarry that you are going to hunt? And then I can tell you which book and which author to look for. I'm I'm always curious to find what what people's personal opinions are. You know, as far as um, the their favorite book that they felt like they got the most knowledge from versus okay. you know what might be more technically you know collectible or, or the highest you know collectible book that they have. So well for me. Uh, the Ronald Stevens again. I th- mm-hmm. I really like the way he he looked falconry and how he ended and uh, the fact that he flew his falcons free and kept them free at the end of his day. He lived on a cabin on a on a coastal shore and he never kept his uh, falcons tied anymore because he he trained them and and let him fly free. And he gonna went out of his house, just uh, called them, and uh, they came back to him. They were Aegis birds. 
So he ended up without using a leash or a lure or nothing. Mm. And yeah. that's the perfect scenario or, or like a dream for a long winger. Well, sure, because they're going to stay totally fit and, and muscled and, and um, they're going to be probably your best flying bird because they're they're always flying free and and don't you know they're they're not gonna lose any of that and yeah i can only imagine for me i think that's the closest thing to faculty perfection yeah yeah and as far as the most like highly collectible book or like the most like uh you know you don't have to say a dollar amount or anything but the most like what what you can consider to have the most collectible book that you have Oof, that's a tough one there is too many on the old works of course mm-hmm that are all, all out there. Uh, for example, a Latham, a book. Uh, it's like the Holy Grail. They are very tough to find first, uh, especially a first or second edition. Mm. Those are uh, the most costly, but not only costly. Uh, they are very hard to find or strange. Yeah, I know that there's some of these books that will go for technically... <laughs> what what would more or less convert to tens of thousands of dollars for you know for us in the U.S. I mean easily you know I yeah but well no that's that's great I mean I'm sure we could talk forever about <laughs> about this particular subject but let's just go ahead and and talk about you know what originally sparked your interest in falconry itself then and I know this all spawned from that but. <laughs> But yeah, how how did you get into all this? Well, uh, when I was a kid, I, were, I loved to have small animals like any uh, other, uh, and on the on my around my home, and I used to have mice and, uh, and all kind of these uh, frogs and small animals. And one day I came back with a friend, and he had a crestrel. It was an Ajax crestrel, and he doesn't even know what uh, nothing about the bird. So he released the kestrel on his room, and it was a female set on the on the corner of a fish tank and start fishing. <laughs> and I was like, "Wow!" I was impressed. Like it's a raptor. I, I need to know more about that. So I ended up trading my ele- my highly costly electronic uh, games at that time, mm-hmm. the football games, uh-huh. and uh, came back home with a kestrel. Mm-hmm. My mom was uh, uh, terrorized, and she said, "Oh, first you got robbed, and second, <laughs> uh, this bird is going to eat your eyes." So <laughs> Grandpa came uh, came by to help, and he said, "Oh, forget about this. This uh, guy is going to keep the bird for a couple of months. It's going to die, and that's going to be that's it." <laughs> and that particular bird lived for eight years. <laughs> then I went to my uh, my grandfather's library. And uh, trying to to find out what it was. And I got a very old encyclopedia. And then I find out it was a Kestrel. And uh, I was looking at at an European encyclopedia. So everything was twisted. But I found the word falconry over there. And I I, I see that it can actually be trained. And that that was like, uh, that hit me. was like, wow. (laughs) I need to know more about that. And that's where the the hunt the hunting for falconry books started. Gotcha. Yeah. No, I'm sure that the bird living for eight years was much to your mom's chagrin, so to speak. You know, she, oh, yeah. she probably wasn't very she happy was about pleased. that. But <laughs> there was one one uh, Christmas uh, day uh, that we have we live on a big house and my grandfather lived on a big house and he put a huge. 
Christmas tree. And on one, on one Christmas, he uh, asked me to release my couple of kestrels uh, on, on the lobby. And they were sitting or perching on the Christmas tree. Then they fly all over screaming and get back to the, to the tree. And it was awesome. Yeah, I'm sure they were probably, uh, you know, crapping all over the place and stuff too. And oh yeah, they the were putting the snow on, the, on all the uh, <laughs> <laughs> decorations. Uh, <laughs> extra yeah. snow. Yeah, <laughs> extra snow. <laughs> That's awesome. No, I uh, I'm sure that probably yeah, major major family just thrilled. But uh, but yeah, so I mean. After the kestrels, where how did like what evolved from that? I, what what type of birds did you oh, get went, after that and and all that? Well, I went to a Harris hawk, and of course that uh, lasted forever. Like Harris hawks are uh, all terrain birds, and uh, yeah, he he, uh, it was a male Harris Aegis that uh, stayed for me also for a long time, and uh, well. He was uh, the one who, uh, that teach me falconry. I don't, I don't train the birds. The birds uh, train me. <laughs> I, I have a different way to approach the birds. I'm not. Uh, I don't treat them as my uh, pets. I, I, I'm not. They are not. Uh, they are not captive. I am the captive one. So I am the one that has to provide, to look, and to understand the needs. So my my goal is to provide them with everything they need to be healthy, to be happy, and to be able to perform. Mm. So that's that's the way I approach falconry. Mm. Yeah, it's a different approach, for sure. As like uh, Ed Pitcher said, fit them up. <laughs> Most people drop the weight down, and that's not always the solution. Fit them up, fuel them. Yeah. Uh, it, falconry is not about hunger, it's about trust. So the line is very, very, very thin. If you uh, play games with your with your bird, if you rob food from them, if you mistreat them, they just fly away. Yeah, they don't have to stick around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. There's there's different ways you can, um, as you can say, uh, there's lots of ways to skin a cat in that situation. Exactly. But, you know, I mean, and and what works for one person doesn't always work for another and, and all that kind of stuff. But and it uh, also depends on the bird you're flying is mm -hmm. you cannot do uh, those kind of things with a goshawk or a coops, mm -hmm. but well, as a long winger, and that's, that's why I'm looking that, that way It's yeah. different. The noble and the innoble birds. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh there is some truth on, on those terms. Yes, there is <laughs> very much so. Well, and then eventually you evolved into just primarily doing or flying long wings then after you said after like the Harris Hawk, but how, how soon after that was that? A couple of years. Yeah. And how long have you been flying long wings since then primarily? Since then, I never, never looked back. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I became uh, uh, a specialist on peregrine falcons. First, uh, there were passage. Then uh, we move on to edges birds, mm -hmm. and that's where I make all my my uh, focus yeah. on on edges peregrines. Mm -hmm. Until now, now I am uh, I am uh, uh, working with some uh, year falcons that I import from uh, Portugal, white years, uh, and I'm uh, start to flying them uh, on this uh, latitude. So 
it's see how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> not an easy task. No, no, no. They're not exactly warm weather yeah, birds. Not the perfect scenario. <laughs> yeah. But that's uh, something I want to try in my lifetime. So, sure. Why not? Yeah. Why not? I mean, if you got the means and and you've got the time and the the effort and the energy and the motivation, go forth and prosper. Yeah. Well. <laughs> You'll only live once. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, and as far as, um, you know, just different other uh, experiences that, you, that you've that you had, I mean, have you ever had a chance to, like, go to the States and, and see birds fly? And, oh, uh, that, you know, by all means. I, yeah. I have uh, been a NAFA member since uh, 1984, mm-hmm. and... Uh, uh, yes, I have been on NAFA meets uh, many times. I have been with other college falconries. I, well, I have been on the House of Grouse, of course, uh, hunting with uh, with deer falcons with huge, uh, with, uh, well, with many friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can tell you, I've been around. Also went to Spain and with some other colleagues and, and fly some uh, long wings. Great. Yeah, I mean, I'm so far. It's been like I said. That's that's one of the reasons I've been happy to be able to do some of these other things is to get to see how falconers across the world, you know, do things and um, you know what's important to them and you know just the differences and uh, and how they do things compared to how we do things in the states. And that's something else I wanted to talk to you about because I know that. Part of the reason, you know, like with some of your prior involvement with with NAFA and also trying to, you know, kind of um, change the way kind of things are done in Mexico and and stuff like that. I mean, what what's some of the things that that you've done, you know, in, in regards to trying to to make some of those changes? Okay, I got a good stories here. <laughs> we got time. Since, since well. On the on the eighties, uh, it hit us the prohibition of having uh, passage birds or or trap passage, passage birds, and it came from the states because of the uh, peregrine falcon situations. So Mexico was different. We we never really had a huge drawback on on the on the peregrines, especially on the tundras. Tundras uh, population never really dropped. However, we wanted to protect them as well, so we want that all the falcon rivers were registered. So we went to the government at that time it was called Sedue, and turns out they didn't know anything, and they just want to to prohibit everything and block. So I was told by the director to bring my birds to the to the uh, to their to his office. Mm-hmm. And he was going to check out if I had him on good shape in order to evaluate if I was a candidate to have a permit to to keep me my birds. And well, that uh, hit the red alarms because uh, it sounds like I was going to be cheated and I was going to be um, uh, well. They were going to take the birds out of me. So mm-hmm. I decided to prepare myself and make a take pictures of my uh, insta- my installations my equipment i put together a working plan on how i how i feed how i train the falcons show uh, bring some pictures and i decide to go assist to this meeting with my birds and present them 
So uh, when I was getting in, the guardian told me, you are going to, you are going to lose your birds today and you are going to be, uh, to have a, a ticket or if, mm. so, well, not, that, that, that was not going to stop me. I went in and uh, had that meeting. The director bring his, uh, his um, uh, colleagues or biologists mm -hmm. to evaluate and uh, at the very first, they were a little nasty. So as the meeting went uh, on, they changed. They start hearing me, and uh, they were amazed. So they told me, "Okay, there is not a permit uh, form for for me to give you or grant you. I'm going to allow you to keep the birds, but in a, in in exchange, I want to have uh, some support of you because we have some ideas." We want to to put together a, legi uh, a, a reglament and the laws, and uh, we need uh, we need uh, ideas from professionals, and you qualify as that. So I start working with the biologists for uh, a full year on a falconry reglament. I talked to all my uh, falconry colleagues. I wrote letters. At that time, there was no internet. And um, everything was done by letters. And uh, I wrote uh, to all the um, important associations uh, worldwide. So I had the, the copies of all the reglaments and start putting together pieces of what worked and what didn't work in other countries and put a model of a reglament which I presented back to, to, to SEDUE. So they they love it. We have some uh, brainstorms, some things were adapted to the to that epoch, and uh, it uh, it was translated to uh, an official uh, normativity. Mm. So everything was moving along, and uh, when it came for the timing for signing the the documents, it was turned up to the Congress. And there was two important people that were going to sing the document. And at that particular time, one of them got killed. <laughs> so everything was stopped. The, the, the govern the secretaries that had that begin fighting themselves for power uh, and uh, everything become a mess. And when was this? This was um, night, night, in the 87, I think. 87? 87. 87. Uh, approximately. 87. Approximately. Since yeah. then, I have been talking to them, showing uh, showing them uh, the reglament, uh, giving some ideas, trying to get this uh, ongoing. But it, it, it never had the interest. The response back was that there was not enough people to justify uh, to put together uh, a normativity. And now... On, on the nowadays, uh, we had the opposite, quite the opposite. The ambientalists and the uh, people that protect animals want to prohibit everything that do they don't understand. And of course, falconry has been under attack. So I am one of the uh, guys up front that is defending falconry in Mexico. So you've basically been trying to do all this stuff for the past 30 plus years, basically. That is correct. <laughs> and that's tough because uh, as many countries, especially Latin countries, 
uh, it's very hard to put together uh, uh, or gather the people uh, to focus on one uh, on one goal. So everyone wa wants to be the the commanding voice mm -hmm. or have the the benefits and the merits, and that creates a mess. So every single time that we want to put together and we start working together, one of the guys uh, disrupts everything and. Mm. And it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. However, I I'm, I'm still fighting. I'm uh, I'm the voice for NAFA. I'm uh, tr I'm trying to bring some sense out of this, and uh, I keep informing NAFA uh, on what's um, the Mexican falconry, what's going on in Mexico, and it works it works uh, both ways. Mm -hmm. And I do bring news to the Mexican guys uh, and uh, invite them to join NAFA. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's all you can really do is, you know, just keep plugging away and, and just hope that eventually, you know, that final barrier or whatever it is gets knocked down and, and you're able to, to do whatever it is you're, you're trying to do, you know? And, uh, yeah, until then, I'm sure the last 30 years have been a little frustrating for you though. <laughs> oh, I can tell you. Yes. Uh, there were times that, that I was putting all my time and all my effort on those and, uh, and I learned the hard way that you you need to live on other things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, because, you know, sometimes all of this stuff can be a, um, a lot of this stuff can be a very thankless job as well. And, um, you know, you're not going to get a whole lot of, uh, yeah, a whole lot of, you know, recognition or thanks for, <laughs> you know, for all of your efforts. So. You're never going to get the recognition. And the recognition doesn't mean anything. I mean... Uh, the recognition will be that uh, the the sport prev uh, prevails. So that's what we're lo really looking uh, here. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I mean, it's not much better thanks you can you can have to <laughs> is be able to keep doing what you've been doing for all these years. What I'm doing now, it's uh, I'm educating the new people. So I'm I'm providing uh, uh, educate training to the new falconry uh, participants or uh, some uh, veterinarians that want to learn how to manage or take care of raptors. And, uh, well, I'm providing some uh, teachings on that, and that's free of charge. I'm not uh, making money out of uh, this. Well, and as far as um, you know, how other people can kind of try and, and help advocate or help um, further the cause, so to speak, here in, at least here in Mexico? I mean, what, what do you recommend that they do then as far as, you know, trying to help get those things done and help, you know, if other people want to help you accomplish those things, what can they what Well, can they my do? recommendations for, for them is try to do the things the right way. Don't um, uh, teach others with, the, with the, your example. Become a leader. And uh, to become a leader, that, that doesn't mean that you need to shout the, uh, or to give rules. That means that you are a person that, that are um, good enough to be followed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So teach with example. Do not uh, uh, do uh, anything wrong to hurt the birds. Don't trap illegal birds. Don't buy illegal birds. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Just try and be ethical, essentially. Be ethical yeah. as as much as possible. Okay. And uh, uh, if I get, if I can give 
uh, uh, recommendation for any falconer, uh, uh, what I have learned outfield or known all these years, uh, it will be that do not assume. When you assume, you are you, you chances are that you are wrong. Yeah. Most of the times when you assume and you think you know things and you know what's going to happen, you're uh, you're wrong. Yeah. And uh, our birds are exper experts. I'm sure Shawi knows that. <laughs> that they are. That they are. That's falconry in That's general. That's falconry yeah. in general. Exactly. So do not assume. Be prepared for the worst. Uh, always look for Morphe's Law and prepare for any scenario. Yeah. No, that's that's um, yeah, that's great advice. And as, as far as just some of your own personal falconry, though, over the years, this is probably a good time to go ahead and, and get that, uh, you know, those one or two most memorable stories that you have as far as particular either birds or, you know, hunting experiences or what that you, uh, you know, that are always on your mind. Well, uh, there's plenty of them, but uh, I think that most of the falconers always talk about the perfect scenario, the perfect day, or uh, exaggerate or show something that was uh, gorgeous. That's not the case for me. Hmm. I, I think that you can learn from the, from the tough experience, and those are the ones that you remember the most. Hmm. So one of the, the stories uh, that I will write someday about, it's uh, about the use of a master falconer, falcon. A master falcon. Uh, that's on on Spanish uh, falconry. In the old days, they used a trained falcon to to teach anellas how to fly and hunt. So uh, that accelerated the process of teaching a bird, and that was used when there was not uh, drones or or balloons or any other uh, te uh, modern techniques mm -hmm. that we use uh, nowadays. So, with this being said, I use an old uh, trained falcon to teach uh, an Ellas Peels uh, that I import from Lejeune, uh, from Canada. It was uh, uh, on uh, the 92, 1992. Hmm. So, uh, on one day, I went out, I released the two falcons, they flow as a couple, and uh, the female that was experienced falcon, the master falcon, hunt a dog, and the pills was uh, coming down and uh, joining to the kill, and he got scared and flew away. So that was kind of weird. Uh, and fortunately, I had a, a friend coming with me, and I he had a lure by uh, by himself. So he went looking for for the male, and I was going to assist the female. I went running. Uh, to to join her, and all of a sudden I get sunk in the mud, <laughs> and the mud went all over my head. So I was fortunate enough to grab the the uh, side mm -hmm. and uh, throw or blew out the mud out of my nose, mouth, and everything. So I couldn't move. It was like uh, like uh, like quicksand or quicksand. something. Yeah. And I stayed there because I was shouting to my friend. My friend was occupied trying to recover the, the mail. He took his time. And all of a sudden, he came by and looking for me. And, and he found my bird. And then he saw my face going out from, from the mud. <laughs> so he was uh, able to pull me out. 
And I went out without boots, without uh, receiver, without uh, binoculars. Everything gets stuck in the mood. <laughs> so again, I, I get on that side and I just see how the mood eat down the, the falcon with the kill. So uh, how scared were you? <laughs> well, <laughs> I was very scared. But I was more scared uh, about losing the bird. So I was uh, when I was on the shore, I was thinking about weird ideas of stripping on myself, tying a rope and trying to, to <laughs> go and rescue the bear. And my friend was going to pull me out. And I, when I was uh, working out this uh, uh, ridiculous uh, rescue, the bear just got uh, eaten by the moth. Yeah. Well, and, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is, is how ate up we are with this sport and these birds, is that we're more worried about that at that given moment than suffocating in a big giant vat of mud <laughs> it does <laughs> yeah that pretty much sums up uh pretty much sums up how warped we are i guess in some ways and can't just how ate up with it we can be but uh so did you have success then with that technique i mean did it, did oh, it yes. work it worked but i had to to try it eventually years later mm -hmm. so it took me another four years to to make it happen yeah that's a good concept. And I mean, whenever you, you know, talk about it, it's, I mean, honestly, it's, it's not really so different than, than how parents would teach, you know, young to, to hunt and, and everything. So, I mean, that's an interesting concept. I wonder how many people have really done that successfully. I think very few people. And that's some of the things that you can learn when you read the Falconry books, other yeah. cultures, other stories other techniques. Mm -hmm. So uh, as I told you on the very beginning, do not assume there is a, a world of information uh, ready to be uh, uh, read or obtained. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. And well, I mean, is there a, is there one more or is there another instance that, that you have that you can, that you can I can't tell you of? many, but I think <laughs> let's go, go ahead and share one, one more. And then, uh, and we should be able to to go ahead and probably wrap this up. And uh, okay, yeah. talking about uh, what we were saying earlier, I went to a NAFA meeting, mm -hmm. and this was again in the eighties, mm -hmm. and the telemetry was not available in Mexico at that time. So I went to to do some outings with different falconers, and there was this guy George uh, Richer, I think, that he was like uh, oof the the star. Uh, flying peregrine falcon so I need to go out with him of course and so I did and it turns out that he lost his peregrine and he was taking out all his telemetry equipment and he was very stressed and I, I kind of saw the flight outside and I was driving with him but uh, I decided to look for the bird the way I do uh, I used to look for my falcons uh, when I lost them. So I went myself, a strive uh, to a hill, and the guy was very angry because uh, I was going to to uh, lose his time. So they drove in, in their trucks and, and leave me on the field. Mm -hmm. And uh, they came back two hours later uh, and and to pick me up and found me that I, I took off my shirt and I had his peregrine on my hand, uh, <laughs> calm, <laughs> And he was like, wow, I'm surprised. How did you, how did you get it back? And I just told him, well, uh, where I come from, 
We don't have telemetry, so I use the old ways. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tri triangulation. It's like, well, well, you you would have figured that out had a, had you actually stuck around and not left me here for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. Oh, geez. Well, no, like I said, this has been, um, I think, a really enlightening conversation in, in a lot of different ways. I'm glad that we were able to, to make this work in the short amount of time that I'm able to be here. And uh, yeah, it's it's always a challenge trying to figure out the logistics and you know coordinating everybody's time and when they're free and, and everything else so i mean i appreciate you doing it on you know fairly short notice and um you know like i said i'm you know thank you so much for for sharing you know your your library and and stuff and uh i mean is there any other last um any other last sentiment or any other um last thought that you'd like to to leave on Sure, you are more than welcome to come anytime. Uh, there is a lot of uh, things we can talk uh, uh, further on. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, we have only touched the surface. Mm -hmm. When you, we talk about books, we can talk uh, hours about stories, uh, time, uh, teachings, lessons. And there is so many things that people don't know that exist that it uh, keeps amazing. Yeah. Mm. So well, you're welcome to come any other time and hope you guys uh, like uh, uh, this talk and learn a little bit more about uh, Mexican falconry. Yeah, well, and, and that's something that one of the goals that, you know, I know I personally have with all of this is just to, to give people more information on how things work in different parts of the world and, and um, you know, just getting other people's, you know, I think everybody around the world has... Uh, the um i don't know they they have earned the right to be able to you know share their stories and experiences with everyone and uh yeah and i'm i'm just hoping that we can keep doing it so like i said i mean thanks for being a part of it and um who knows maybe we can work out a you know a part two sometime and just talk you know just forever about you know the for, for for those people that are as uh sick and twisted as us about just the you know the the literary stuff and uh some of the history it might be uh might be another fascinating thing to do sometime well be my guest <laughs> all right <laughs> sounds good thank you again raul and I, I, like i said i appreciate your time my pleasure all right thanks